If you would this morning, turn with me to John chapter 12. The Gospel of John and chapter 12. We're going to start reading with verse 20 and move to 26. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Hear these words now. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank You for Your Word. Bless now this reading of Your Word to our hearts. And by the power of Your Spirit, would You speak to us this morning through Your Word? Would You help us to respond in faith and obedience, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Holy Week is a unique week of the year. Most of the church calendar actually builds toward this week. Uh, So we all have calendars that we kind of follow. Baseball, basketball, these things come in cycles, right? There is a cycle of the church year. And I feel as a Christian, I ought to at least acknowledge the emphasis the church puts on these certain times of the season. That way I'm not just celebrating an Easter bunny, right? Or eggs, which I can't really connect that much. In, well, actually, I can connect why, but you wouldn't want to know why. Um, from a pagan traditional fertility cult. So, I, you know, it's not, not the point here. No, we want to follow what the church has given to us, which is to say Holy Week is a very important week. Now, here's what's really interesting is as you know, there are kind of two times where people outside of the faith are going to come into the church and peek in and kind of look around a little bit, and that is when? Christmas and Easter. <laughs> now, they've picked some pretty good days, quite frankly. If you, I mean, if you're going to go to church, those are kind of the prime times because, well, one, we're celebrating the incarnation of God. God becomes flesh. And in the other... We're talking about God dying in the flesh and rising again so that we too may resurrect one day in the flesh. There's something holy about this day. Holy about this week. And people pick up on that. Even non-Christians pick up on that. They're not really sure what... But their heart is telling them something sacred is going on this week. I had a co-worker of mine at the college 
who is an atheist. And he and I shared an office. So, you know, a religion instructor with a historian who is an atheist. Makes for good conversation at least, right? He says to me one day, when we were approaching Easter, he said, you know, I used to hunt, duck hunt a lot. Maybe some of you are into duck hunting, and if you're not, you've probably gotten into duck hunting through Duck Dynasty, maybe. Um, he said, I used to hunt a lot, and one Sunday morning, we were out hunting, you know, ducks. And I'm sitting here laying them out, and, you know, I thought to myself, surely I should be somewhere else doing something else. I mean, of all holy days, I shouldn't be out here killing ducks. That's not really what I should be doing, he says to me. And of course, my internal thinking was, why is this day holy for you? He sensed in his heart something was sacred on this Easter morning, this holy week, and yet he really couldn't put his finger on it. Uh, Blaise Pascal, who was a physicist, theologian, philosopher, among many other things, inventor, he said, the heart has its reasons that reason doesn't know. I feel like that's how most of us approach Holy Week. We know that we should feel like it's sacred. We know that we should treat it as holy, and yet up here we're not able to make sense of it. And just like my atheist friend, he tells me the moral of his story was, I haven't killed a duck since. I quit hunting. Hunting altogether. I I don't do it. I think it's bad. It's all because of an Easter Sunday morning experience. Now, I think he's gone wrong on missing the point here. His heart was telling him something was sacred. He responded to it wrongly. He did not respond to the one who makes it sacred. It wasn't the ducks. It was Jesus. In our passage, the Greeks that come to Jesus here, they knew too that something was holy about about this week. (laughs) This is why they come to Jesus. Now you remember who the Greeks are, don't you? They're the ones who first kind of get us into philosophy, right? They're very heady, what you would call kind of head-in-the-clouds type of people. Now the Romans, remember, were very practically minded. I mean, that's why they built so much. (laughs) That's why they still are considered one of the greatest civilizations to ever rule the world. But it was a combination, of course, of the Greco-Roman world, which is the Greek and Roman world, that made them so great. And these heady, intellectual, philosophically minded people come to one of Jesus' disciples, who's named Philip, by the way, which is a Greek name, which is probably why they came to him. They felt a little more comfortable. The other Jews, they're thinking, ah, he probably doesn't. You know, most, most intellectuals are elitist. You ever notice that? If you, if you don't think on their level, then psh, they don't have time for you. These guys probably thought the same way. I mean, we don't know. But just think about it. They think to themselves, Jesus, boy, I bet he's a good thinker. We want to see him. So they go ask Philip. Philip goes ask, tells Andrew. They finally go and tell Jesus. And... Jesus then tells them something that they don't want to hear. What I want to do this morning is I want us to think with these Greek people about what it would be like to meet Jesus on this holy 
week. Because quite frankly, you are meeting Jesus in this holy place today. And what you do with Him is very significant this morning. There was a lot of potential this day. You can look up here in the passage preceding the one we just read and see that it's the triumphal entry. This is Palm Sunday. The crowds, as we've tried to replicate here in this place this morning with our kind of rally branches, so to speak, uh, shouting Hosanna, which means praise God, praise Him, the King has come. We're about to get out of Roman rule. There's about to be some rumblings here and Israel will emerge. At least that was the thinking of the day. This is what they were cheering for. This was what they wanted. And there's a lot of potential this day. I mean, there's crowds and crowds of people. The disciples are probably like, wow, we didn't even know he was this popular. And of course, they're kind of thinking, I need to make sure my eyebrows here, you know, make sure I don't have anything I want to know. I mean, they're looking around because they're following Jesus. They're thinking, we got it. We did it. We got in with the right Messiah. Now remember, there are a bunch of people that were claiming to be Messiah during this period. Actually, the, the palm branches themselves go back to the Maccabean revolt about a hundred and something years before that where a revolutionary rose up and tried to take out, out Rome and, well, they crushed him. But the palm branches were waved because they thought he was the Messiah. And so too now, this messianic hope, this messianic excitement is back in the air. It's kind of like before a Saints game. Everybody's pumped. Now sometimes after a Saints game, that's not the case. But before, there's much expectation. And you can just feel the electric excitement in the air as Jesus finally comes into Jerusalem. I mean, He's been up north somewhere preaching in these podunk places and finally is starting to make His way back down with these little disciples of His who seem to be tripping over everything and not understanding Him. And finally He makes it back to the place where He can actually make a difference. This is, for the Jews, New York City. This is Washington. This is a place where you can actually make a difference in the world. And everybody's out there. Everybody's wanting to see. Everybody wants to see Him do a sign. They've heard that He's raised the dead. They've heard that He's healed lepers. That He's made the blind to see. And the lame to walk. They want to see it. They're cheering. There's a lot of potential here this day. But what the Gospels show to us is that Jesus saw through The excitement. You ever seen people excited about the wrong thing? That happens, doesn't it? They don't even know why they're cheering. (laughs) And yet, they're cheering. That may have been the case. Maybe some of them knew, but the majority did not. And yet, they're excited. They're pumped. The crowd mentality has taken over and they're cheering for Jesus as He comes through. You know, when God looks at us, He sees more than what we see. He sees the potential there. He sees what can be. Since we're talking about the Greeks, let's just get a little philosophical real quick, okay? 
Not that it's my expertise, but let's try to do it. How many apples am I holding in my hand? (laughs) Think of an apple's potentiality, just to use a philosophical term this morning. Anytime you want to use a philosophical term, just turn a regular word into a, a, add a couple things to it, like potential to potentiality. And that makes it philosophical. How many apples am I holding? Well, it's potentially countless. Potentially thousands of apples, depending on what I do with the apple, right? Yeah, it's the truth. I mean, if I go throw this out in the yard, the seeds are going to spread, and that seed produces another apple tree, and that apple tree could produce potentially hundreds of other apple trees, and so on and so forth. The question of how many apples is answered by what you do with the apple itself. The potential's there. This is why in the Bible, murder is so bad. When you murder someone, you're also killing their potential. Potential life that they could produce. You're not just killing them, you're killing their entire family they could have had. God sees our potential. He doesn't look at us and just say, what a measly little apple. Instead, He sees countless other trees that could be produced from these seeds that are here. Is this not what He says right here in the text? Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it just remains an apple. But if it falls into the ground and dies, gives up its life, and becomes a blade of wheat, then it can be fruit for many. God sees what you can become. He knows that. Out of all, when, he, when He cuts through the excitement, when He cuts down to the core of who you are, He sees what you can become. He sees what you can do in His world. He sees the potential. He does know everything, by the way. Even all potential circumstances. God has so much for us. He wants to forgive us. He wants to erase our sins off of this board that always seems to be behind us, accusing us, reminding us of what we've done. He can erase that. (laughs) He wants to transform us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, He wants to justify us from our sins of the past, but also sanctify us and clean us up from our sin. The problem. He wants to place Himself in us. What a thought! And fill us with His love. We can be friends with God. I mean, as I've said before, you know, it'd be cool to be friends with someone very famous. I mean, you'd get some real perks out of that, right? We can. (laughs) We can. You realize He's not dead. He is alive. And we can be God's friend. And that means there are benefits. There's potential great 
benefits in his family. <laughs> he wants us to be his representatives, his witnesses. We represent Christ as dignitaries represent world leaders. We're his ambassadors. He has so much for you that you wouldn't believe it if he were to tell you flat out, which is why you've got to grow into it. But he's calling you, he sees your potential. He sees what you can become. Others may see a little apple. He sees an orchard. But there's a problem. Isn't there? Haven't you found? I mean, we know the good news, right? It's ho-hum by this point for most of us. We've heard it so much that it's become... Deaf to our ears. Our ears have become deaf to it. We know it's good, and yet we don't go after it. There was a lot of uh, excitement that day, and yet when they saw Jesus, I imagine that the attitude began to change. I mean, here's the one who was supposed to be a miracle worker, Potentially the new Messiah who was to take over Rome. And here he comes with his feet dragging the ground on a little bitty baby's donkey. Not even a full-blown donkey. And you're thinking, well, maybe they just were out of horses that day, right? At the rent beast <laughs> Maybe they just didn't have the white stallion. You know, since there were so many people in Jerusalem. But then you got to looking at him, and also he wasn't armed. Nor were his disciples. Except for maybe Peter, he was always carrying. And they say, we sure we got the right guy? Maybe he had SEAL Team 6 hidden in the city. Maybe his ninjas were just simply in the shadows. No. The problem is we make God into our image and after our likeness. And when He doesn't fit our mold, we reject Him for ourselves, And we choose us. We choose me. This is what happened to Jesus. You say, how can such a guy that can't be found guilty before Pilate, or can't be found guilty before Herod, be murdered from an unjust, unjust trial? It's because we don't like light. We're like sleeping teenagers who want our own way and when you flip on the light, are screaming at their parent, Shut it off! I'm trying to sleep here! And when the light came into Jerusalem, they rejected the light and ran into darkness. And we do the same thing. When you hear them say, Crucify Him! Put Him out. 
That's me. That's my voice. My mocking voice. We saw God and we did not like Him. Because He wasn't what I made in my head. If the apple remains on the tree and never falls, what happens? It spoils. You've seen bad apples. Our life is not meant to be lived for ourselves. If the apple says, you know what, this whole thing about giving up your life for other people, sharing, that's just not my thing. You'll never become anything. You'll be a spoiled, rotten, worm-infested soul. Which is the way the Bible describes hell. Where the worm dies not. We're not meant to be spoiled. To spoil on the vine. Rather, we're meant to die to ourselves so that we might have life. In the famous words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer before he was martyred by the Nazis, hung in 1945, he said, when God calls a man, He bids him come and die. The only call of Jesus to you is to take up your cross and follow Him. There is no other way When we talk about Jesus being the way, it's not just the way that we define. We don't define Jesus. That's idolatry. Instead, His way is the way of the cross. There is no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust Him and obey. Period. But we don't believe. We believe there's another way. We believe it's our way. And we morph Jesus in our mind intellectually. Our heart knows what we should do. And yet our mind talks us out of it. We're too smart for our own good. All of us are. Including myself. If we only followed our heart, we'd be good. But we do not. You know, the Spirit is nudging some of you now saying, You know what? That's right. You've been living and hanging there like a rotten apple unwilling to fall into the ground and die so that you might have real life. And you just keep hanging. Hanging on to whatever sin it is that you keep hanging on to. It's a lack of belief. It's a lack of knowledge. You don't know God. You've made up a God that is not the God of the Bible. You've made up a God that is not Jesus Christ, who is the exact representation of the Father. When you see Him, you see the Father. When you see the Father, you see Him. They are one. And yet we've rejected Him. And we have deceived ourselves. And we don't have life. Some of us have been in church all of our life. And we've played the game so long that it's just what we do on Sunday. 
we've never really looked into the face of God because we're hanging on to our life. We are unwilling to open ourselves to God. Whether it's fear, whether it's sin, or just pure and simple apathy. Just don't care. We like to try to take shortcuts. I remember in seminary, I'm not the best at writing papers, but I remember in seminary, we had to do a research paper for Dr. Oswald. Now, he's a world-renowned Old Testament scholar, okay? So, you know, when you get somebody of that kind of caliber, you're, you're not just trying to make an A, you're trying to impress the guy. I mean, you want him to remember you, right? Uh, on a world scale, I mean, you want him to be able to say, yeah, I know Dr. Oswald, you know, so what I say about the Old Testament is true because, you know, well, he and I are buddies and he gave me an A. In one of his guides to research papers, to doing a research paper, you know, uh, he says in there, when you're doing your sources, you've all probably had to do this, right? You get these different sources and then you cite them in the, in the paper and, you know, you're trying not to plagiarize, but, but really you're trying to plagiarize, right? To take the shortcut. Rewording things while stealing the idea. And the idea is what should not be plagiarized. He says in there, Going the shortcut is not the way of the cross. Now he put that little little phrase in there, it's not the way of the cross. And I promise you, it tortured me the whole time I did the paper. All I ever heard was him saying, it's not the way, and if you knew this guy, it's not the way of the cross. And he has this you know, big smile, and when he smiles at you, his eyes close. Um, so I heard all throughout the whole paper, it's not the way of the cross. You know what? In life, we try to take shortcuts. With God, we try to take shortcuts. We want to see how little we can do for Jesus and still make it. That's why we want to ask the preacher, but we're too kind of embarrassed to do it. You know, what all can I do and still make it in? I mean sin-wise. I mean selfish-wise. We're unwilling to give up our life. Our dreams. What we've held on to. We feel safer with me. The Old Testament shows us we can't trust ourselves. We need God's directions. And it shows us there is no shortcut. What it shows us is that we are not free. We're not free to love God. We're not free to believe in God. We are a slave to ourself. We're obsessed with ourself. When the London Times at the early part of the 20th century asked a number of writers for essays on the topic, What's Wrong with the World?, G.K. Chesterton, who was a predecessor of, uh, a forerunner of of C.S. Lewis, sent in the reply that was shortest and also most to the point. So remember, the paper was on, his paper, his essay was to be on what is wrong with the world. He sends in this, Dear Sirs, I am, sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. 
I am. I'm what's wrong with the world. Marshall Dagg. My sin, my inability to trust in God, and my ability to trust in myself has ruined lives. I've caused death in other people. Spiritual death, suffering in the world, heartache because of my sin. I'm the problem. There's another saying that says, we looked for the enemy and we found it was me. Do you really believe that? Or is it always somebody else's fault? Are we still back in the Garden of Eden? Blaming our wife, blaming our co-worker, blaming our mother and father, blaming our political machine, blaming our culture. When's it ever going to stop? You're the CEO of your own life. Some of us need to stop and have a staff meeting with ourselves and say, Self, you are the problem. Until you realize that, you can't be a Christian. That's the first step. Confession. I can't do it. You've got to first look up. Most of us are, are too busy doing this number. <laughs> and we're looking down on everybody. We think we're so high and mighty that there is nothing above us. And we're not free to love. We're not free to give ourselves. We're too afraid. The antidote, the medicine we need to take is to repent and believe. Repent of your sins and turn to God. He'll turn you inside out. It's what He wants to do. So the potential is there. The problem, we all know. And yet, the answer is the passion. Now, the passion is kind of a technical word. It can mean passionate love, this sort of thing. But it also means suffering. Actually, the term actually means suffering. Have you ever really loved somebody? I mean, really loved somebody. When you really choose to love someone, you ever notice how you fall by the wayside? What you want to do falls off. It's yeah, not that big of a deal. I mean, most of us had some kind of transformation when we were younger and we thought we were in love, or maybe our first love, where it's like, dude, you used to eat all the time. What's wrong with you? Hey, you know, just Oh, you're in love is what it is, huh? You used to go play baseball with us all the time. What in the world's wrong with you? We fall by the wayside when we're truly in love. We're not focused upon ourselves. Because there is no room for self in love. I'm focused on another. Do you love God? It's the greatest commandment. It sums up the entire Bible. Jesus basically gets the question asked, what sums up the whole Bible, Jesus? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. That, that's the whole Bible in one sentence. 
with a semicolon maybe. Do you love God? I mean, by your actions, do you love God? Not just in your head. All of us in our head think we love God. Oh, God and I are tight, you know. What do your co-workers say? What does your wife say? What do your children say? What does your friends say? What means the most to you in your life? Look at where you spend your time, and you can find it. Look at where you spend your money, and you'll find it. Time is life. It's all we have. When your time ends, well, your life ends. Because time is life. Who do you spend your time with? Is it ever with God? Do you ever meet with Jesus Christ? Or is it all about you? You just spend time by yourself, in yourself, doing your own thing in the world. There is no other way but the cross. The cross is an interesting contradiction. It's where God and us meet. Horizontally and vertically meet. It's where death can become life. That's a contradiction. It's the paradox of all paradoxes. And yet, the cross is life. The cross is the only way to God. Jesus says in Mark 8, If you want to be My disciple, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Me. Where did He go? He went to go and die so that He might give life to all people. Do you want to love your children, really? Your co-workers? Do you want to make a difference in the world? Do you want to leave something behind in this world for others to enjoy? Do you want to produce fruit for the kingdom? The only way is if you're willing today to die to yourself. Let me just tell you something real quick on a personal note. I know what Satan tries to do. He says, you can do this next week. Don't worry about it. You can do it tomorrow. No, 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 you cannot. Here's why. Because when the calling of God is here, Jesus tells us, no one comes to the Father except by me. By His calling. You don't even come to God on your own time. Time is not yours to have. You don't set the standards of this relationship. God does. Until you learn that first step, you'll never be His disciple. He has to first become our master before He can become our friend. It is not on your terms that you come to God. It is on His. And if you miss the nudging of the Holy Spirit and reject Him right now, you're rejecting Jesus Christ. If you reject what God has told you in your heart today, you are rejecting Jesus Christ and His cross. Now your heart's telling you, this is Holy Week. Your heart's telling you, this is holy and right and sacred and good. Don't let your mind talk you out of it. We have this 
interesting division between our mind and our heart, and the altar helps us unify that. Because at the altar, your body gets up and you kneel before God, your Maker. Are you willing to bow a knee? As we read this morning from Philippians, everyone one day will bow their knee before Jesus. It's best to do it now. The time is short. Life is short. Are you willing to take up your cross on this Palm Sunday and walk with Jesus this holy week? Love is both the beginning and end of this whole thing. Because love is God. And God is love. From way back playing G.I. Joe's, I knew that the good guys win. You know, you just know that. Something in our heart tells us the good guys win. This is why Neo in the Matrix gets back up, resurrects. This is why Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia gets back up, he resurrects. It's why Harry Potter in the Harry Potter series gets back up and resurrects is because good cannot lose. Do you want to be good? Do you want to get on the winning team? (laughs) There's only one way, and that's through death. Death to yourself because I am the problem. God can fix us. God can redeem us. God can transform us right now. In an instance, as you bow before Him, His Holy Spirit can transform your life. Are you out of whack? Are you lost? Are you sinful and wicked? Admit that. Confess that today. Repent of it. And Jesus can come in and change your world. He can do it. He will do it. If we'll deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Him. Amen. Amen. This morning I pray that as you stand with me, uh, that the Lord has spoken to your heart and actually done something in your heart. If you would like to uh, let us know what He's done, you can do it on one of the communication cards. If you want me to pray for something this week, put it on that communication card and uh, hand it to me after the service and, and I'll promise to pray for that all week long. Um, let's be dismissed this morning with a word of prayer. Almighty and ever-living God, in Your tender love for the human race, You sent Your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, to take upon Him our nature and to suffer death upon the cross, giving us the example of His great humility. Mercifully grant that we may walk in the way of His suffering and also share in His resurrection. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with You in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen, amen, and amen.